Hello and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. My name is Tane Danger, and I am director of the forum. On today's podcast, we have our program with Ari Shapiro, one of the hosts of National Public Radio's All Things Considered, and the author of the new memoir, The Best Strangers in the World. This is our first time back with the podcast in a little while, so I wanted to take a moment to say hello, and a little bit more about the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Based out of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, we are Minnesota's largest and longest-running national speaker series. The forum's mission is to lift up voices of conscience to address the issues of the day from an ethical perspective. Our forums are entirely free and open to all, in person, via live stream, and now, again, as a podcast. You can listen to any of our talks going back to 1980 on our website, westminsterforum.org. Because these programs are entirely free and open to all, they depend on individual supporters like you. So please consider becoming a supporter of the forum, which you can do on our website, westminsterforum.org. Today's program with Ari Shapiro was recorded in front of a capacity crowd of more than 1,300 people at Westminster Presbyterian on March 28, 2023. The first voice you'll hear is forum moderator Tim Hart Anderson. So without further ado, here's the Westminster Town Hall Forum with Ari Shapiro. Ari Shapiro is the award-winning co-host of National Public Radio's All Things Considered, a role he has served in since 2015. Before that, he spent two years as NPR's international correspondent based in London. He has covered wars in Iraq, Ukraine, and Israel, and has filed stories from dozens of countries and most of the 50 states. He's the winner of numerous prizes in journalism, including the Silver Gavel, two Edward R. Murrow Awards, and the Daniel Shore Journalism Prize. His first book has just been published, a memoir entitled The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. In it, he shares both personal stories going back to growing up in Fargo, North Dakota, (laughs) not far away from here. Leave it to a Minnesota audience to just tepidly applaud (laughs) Fargo. So his story begins in Fargo and then it takes off to Portland and other places. So we're going to hear in his book and in his talk about all the things he has learned in a remarkable career reporting from around the globe. And before we welcome him to start his remarks, we're going to hear a montage of his work on the radio, 60 seconds, just to kind of set the context. And then we will welcome to the Westminster Tunnel Forum, Ari Shapiro. go, pulling out into the water, into the largest mangrove forest in the world. There are going to be people listening somewhere in America who will hear that and say, what are you, crazy? 
No, I'm not crazy. I'm just not gonna subscribe to fear. It feels like a scene out of King Kong or Jurassic Park, but we're really only 25 miles off the coast of Los Angeles. And no dinosaurs. No dinosaurs, as far as you know. <laughs> as far as I know. The Mugabe era is gone, and it's something that can't um, be ever allowed to come back. And is what you're trying to do here making sure that that change stays permanent? Yes. But I really am grateful that my heart has been broken a good many times because it does help me to love. Ari Shapiro, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. Santiago, Chile. Belgrade, Serbia. Izmir, Turkey. Traveling with the president aboard Air Force One. To them, this is just another day on the water. To me, it's a final exclamation point marking the end of my time in the UK. From Minneapolis, Minnesota, this is the Westminster Town Hall Forum. I'm Ari Shapiro. <laughs> and you all look nothing like what I imagined either. I know I sound shorter on the radio. Can I just tell you about that montage? Every five years or so, I like to test myself to see if I still have the audio production skills of the most junior person on the All Things Considered staff. So I put together that montage and sent it to a producer I work with who happens to have taken the cover photo for my book. And she said, great job, buddy, but at about 35 seconds in, there's a sound of a Slack message arriving on your computer. You might want to redo that. So <laughs> even all these years into my career, I'm still learning. It is such an honor to be here with you all. And you've caught me in the middle of a book tour that's taking me all across the country, but there's something really special to me about being here in Minnesota, because this is actually the city where my parents met, where they lived for 10 years. It was 1969 when they met at a folk dancing class on the campus of the University of Minnesota. Yeah. Um, they met in a building that is now known as the Great Hall. Back then it was called the Ballroom. And their first dance was a traditional Swedish dance called the Hambo. Um, my parents are not Swedish. <laughs> but after living in Minnesota for 10 years and then North Dakota for 10 years, I think they can be deemed honorary, if not actual, Midwesterners. Um, like, before I was five years old, I knew what Lefso was. Um, and Krumkaka, I prefer those over Lefsa. But while the kids who I went to school with were eating Lefsa and Krumkaka, my parents were making matzo ball soup and challah every Friday night. <laughs> Some Jews in the audience, all right. Imagine, in the 1980s, my parents were keeping kosher in Fargo, North Dakota. And that meant that once a month, our family had meat delivered on a freezer truck that showed up from Chicago and pulled into the synagogue parking lot. Um, Fargo in those days had not one but two synagogues. There's probably the most well-known Jewish joke ever written, but I'm guessing some of you haven't heard it about the Jew who's stranded on a desert island and when he's finally rescued, he's giving his rescuers a tour of everything he's built, the post office, the town hall, this synagogue, that synagogue, and his rescuers say, wait a second, you're the only person on this island, why are there two synagogues? And he says, that one I would never go to. 
Um, <laughs> but, but my parents were inclusive, and so we would go to the Reform Temple on Friday nights and the Orthodox Shul on Saturday mornings. And every December, my older brother and I, who were the only two Jewish kids in our Fargo Elementary School, Washington Elementary School, in case there are any Fargoans in the audience, um, we would every December go from classroom to classroom with a menorah and a dreidel explaining to these children descended from Scandinavian immigrants what Judaism is and what Hanukkah is. And I realized this is kind of my first experience not only as a public speaker, but also as a kind of ambassador, making the foreign seem a bit less strange for people, which, spoiler alert, will be a recurring theme. <laughs> and so by the time I was a teenager, my family had moved to Oregon. And when I was in middle school, there was a ballot measure proposal that um, it narrowly failed, but it got everybody's attention. It was called Measure 9. And it would have prohibited state funds from being used to promote, and then there was a list, homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality, necrophilia. I'm sorry for saying these words in a sanctuary. <laughs> but when I was in middle school, I was taught by this ballot measure, at least, that being gay was tantamount to abusing children. And then, at the age of 16, I came out of the closet. And I slapped a pink triangle pin on my backpack, and I strutted the halls at Beaverton High School, and I basically said to all my classmates, look, whatever opinions you might think you have about homosexuality, whatever opinions you might think you have about gay people, those are opinions you have about me. So let's talk about it in real, tangible human terms, and not these abstract debates that up until then, everybody at my middle school had been having as if they knew gay people, which most of them knowingly had never actually met a gay person. And so yet again, I found myself in this position of taking something abstract and foreign and maybe even a little scary and trying to put a human face to it. And in those days, in the 1990s, Portland had what I believe at the time was the only all-ages gay nightclub in the United States. It was called the City Nightclub. And so I would go there on the weekends and hang out with all of these queer teenagers, and I, I just need to take a moment to paint a picture for you of my club look. <laughs> and I know some people are gonna be listening to this on the radio, but as Susan Stanberg always says, the pictures are better on the radio. <laughs> so my friends and I, we would go to the Goodwill bins, which was the surplus store where everything that didn't sell at the ordinary Goodwills was piled high for 99 cents a pound. And so we would mix and match kimonos and culottes and fake leather jackets and crazy polyester shirts and put them together, pay 99 cents a pound for whatever we got, and then wear that out to the clubs. So I want you to envision like a wide-collared blue polyester paisley shirt with like a vest from a three-piece suit and maybe... Um, knickers in brown corduroy that, I realize as I say this, I'm wearing blue corduroy. Knickers in brown corduroy that like ended just at the knee and then Doc Martens on my feet and then around my neck like a hemp necklace that I had made with wooden beads. Oh, and, and my hair parted in the middle came down to my chin in a sort of like Nirvana meets Prince Valiant bob. <laughs> so when you're listening to All Things Considered, and you hear me talking about the war in Ukraine or the likelihood of a recession, 
That's what I want you to picture. <laughs> but then I would go back to my high school schedule of honors AP courses, and I would sort of plug back into my big public mainstream white suburban education. And this ability to walk between worlds and to serve as a kind of ambassador felt almost like a superpower. And the realization that I had when I became a journalist is that I could do that same thing. I could use those same skills with groups that I have no personal connection to beyond my curiosity about them. And so my headset and microphone that I use out in the field sometimes feel to me almost like a snorkel and mask that allow me to explore hidden, otherwise concealed worlds that I would never otherwise have access to. And then comes the really important part, I get to share those worlds with you. And in so doing, hopefully build those same kinds of bridges and share the humanity of the people I'm meeting in the same way that as a first grader in Fargo or a teenager in Portland, I was trying to build those bridges and share the humanity of my own personal experience. Now, the last time I was here in Minneapolis was 2019, and I was giving a speech to the Jewish Historical Society of the Upper Midwest about immigration. And if you had told me on that day that my next visit to Minneapolis would be to talk about a book that I had written, and that that book would be a memoir, I would say, you're looking at the wrong crystal ball, that ain't me, babe. <laughs> and there are a couple reasons that I never actually thought I would be doing this. First of all, I've always been attracted to forms, uh, forms of expression that are short-lived. You know, I like to cook, I like to make radio, it's here one day and gone the next. I like to sing with a band, it's called Pink Martini, you might have heard of it, they're actually... They are going to be here in Minneapolis in a couple of days, and I'm going to miss them, but I, I er, encourage you to go see them, unless you're listening to this on the radio, in which case, I'm sorry, they've already been here and gone. Um, but one of the things that I really love about hosting All Things Considered is that it's a volume business. Like, I can do a thing, and then it's gone, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, and then the next day I move on to something else. And I always start with a clean slate. I've written the first draft of history. What comes after is somebody else's concern. And so writing a book always scared me because it felt so very permanent. Like it sits on a shelf for years and stares at you as the book you wrote. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine like making an oil painting. You know, the, like the, 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 the canvases would just sit in a corner piled up and stare at you for years. Uh, all of which is to say the idea of writing a book has always terrified me, and for years I told people I would never do it. And the other reason that I never thought I would be here talking about a memoir of all things is that part of the fundamental tenets of journalism that I practice is that it's not supposed to be about me. Like if I finish reporting a news story and the audience is thinking about my identity and my experience, then I've done something wrong. And so writing about the way I view the world and my experiences in it felt a bit transgressive, like a, a vegetarian who snuck off to eat a cheeseburger in the corner. <laughs> Turns out there's a reason cheeseburgers are so popular. They taste good. <laughs> so why did I do it? Well, I sometimes feel like when I'm reporting on NPR, I put my own identity and perspective in a box. 
And after more than 20 years of reporting, I was curious to open the box and see what was inside. And what I found was that over time, the person I am and the identity that I've brought to my reporting has shaped the stories I've told. And on the flip side of that, the stories I tell have over time shaped the person I am. Um, sometimes covering the news can feel like watching a swollen river go by where there are so many branches and leaves, it's hard to remember any one particular item as it passes by. But what I realize is that over the years, some of these conversations I've had have kind of snagged on something inside me and stuck around and, and subtly changed me. And so in these pages, you're gonna meet fighters who despite being outmanned and outgunned, defended a holy site in Northern Iraq against ISIS for months until they were finally liberated. And in these pages, you'll go aboard Air Force One and you'll feel what it's like to travel with the President of the United States. But I can hear the question you're asking. What does any of that have to do with singing with Pink Martini or creating a cabaret show with Alan Cumming? <laughs> it's a great question. I'm glad you, I'm glad I asked it. <laughs> By the way, I just have to like pull back the curtain a little bit on the way we do things and all things considered. When I'm interviewing an NPR correspondent on the air, at least half the time, they have written the questions that I'm asking. And you wouldn't believe how often I ask a question that the reporter has written, and the reporter immediately replies, great question, Ari. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to publicly shame any of my colleagues, but of course you think it's a great question. You wrote it. <laughs> so to return to my great question, what does covering wars and revolutions and natural disasters and presidential elections have to do with singing with a band or creating a cabaret show with Alan Cumming? At first, I actually thought these things were totally unrelated. Like, I thought that my performance experience was some kind of a secret affair that I was having on the side of my marriage to NPR, although really, how secret can it be when it plays out in front of literally thousands of people night after night? Um, and. Early on when I started singing with Pink Martini, I kept waiting for somebody to sort of tap me on my shoulder and say, you can be a credible journalist or you can sing with a band, but you can't do both. <laughs> and of course that's never happened. And what I realize now is that all of these activities are different ways of doing the same thing. And that same thing is trying to forge connection and help people understand one another. And I realize that as the self-reinforcing bubbles that we live in become more and more impenetrable thanks to social media, algorithms, corporate messaging, political parties, or whatever the case may be. I go with Pink Martini to red parts of Texas and perform songs in Farsi or Arabic, and people dance to them. In Seoul, we perform for an audience in Japanese. In Greece, we sing in Turkish. I don't know if you know, but the Greeks and the Turks have some history. The singer Andra Day, who I once interviewed on All Things Considered, said to me once, music is the only thing that can enter your psyche without your permission. Isn't that good? This is why, by the way, I love that in my job, I not only get to interview lawmakers and policymakers and CEOs, I get to interview the artists and the creators who actually, in many ways, help me better understand the way we live our lives and the human experience than the so-called newsmakers. Um, and so what I'm doing with Pink Martini in that context is really not all that different from what I do regularly with NPR. Like, I once went on a reporting trip to 
rural Louisiana during the government shutdown of 2019, and I interviewed prison guards who were working without pay. They were sleeping on cots at the prison because they didn't have gas money to drive to and from their job. And one of those guys told me through tears that he couldn't afford a birthday present for his three-year-old son. And listeners all over the country wrote in asking how they could send gifts to that little kid. And they didn't ask who this Louisiana prison guard voted for for president. They didn't ask how he feels about guns or immigration. They saw him as a father who cares about his son. And later that same year, I went to rural Mississippi to tell a different story of struggle that was about undocumented workers at a chicken plant who had been caught up in the biggest worksite immigration raid in US history. And once again, listeners responded the same way, asking what they could do to help. And one of the things that Alan Cumming and I realized when we sat down to create a show together, and, and by the way, if you want to know how that show came about, I explain it in my book. Um, one of the things we realize is that like, what Alan and I do actually serves the same goal. Like, even though he's an actor and I'm a journalist, we both tell stories in order to try to help people see the world through someone else's eyes. We both strive to create empathy and connection. And as I was writing the book, I sort of suffused it with all of these stories of empathy, connection, optimism, and hope. And I realized at the end that there were a few people I just could not leave out. And I've never been able to answer the question, what is my favorite interview? So if that was the one you were planning to ask, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But at the end of this book, I talk about a few favorites who are not favorites, who I just couldn't end without telling readers about. And I want to tell you about them, because they seem very different. They're on different continents, but they all share something in common. The first is a young man named David Bondarchuk who I met when I was a White House correspondent, and he was a volunteer White House decorator for the holidays. So he was stringing up the garland and the ornaments, and he told me that he had actually been homeless as a teenager, and he saw a Martha Stewart special about decorating the Clinton White House, and he thought to himself, that's what I wanna do. And by the time I met him all these years later, he had his own events and catering company in Colorado, and he had finally made his dream come true of decorating the White House. And so I said to David, okay, now that this dream has come true, what's your next dream? And he said to me, Martha Stewart in New York, if you're listening, watch out, here I come. <laughs> and a few days later, I got a phone call at my desk, and it was a producer for Martha Stewart saying, could you put us in touch with David Bondarchuk? Uh-huh. Some days later, David and Martha were on TV together making little Christmas trees, and then Martha said, I have another surprise for you. Look at that TV screen. And up hopped Michelle Obama saying, David, you show us that if we keep to our dreams and we never give up and we pursue our goals, beautiful and amazing things can happen. And so, like, I've told stories that have shaped policy. I've had capital I important interviews with capital I important people. A lot of those people didn't make the book. David Bondarchuk did. <laughs> so the next one in this group of people who I couldn't leave behind is a Zimbabwean freedom fighter who used flowers as her weapon. Her name is Savannah Motomombe. And she had spent years in New York, basically in exile, because when Robert Mugabe was in power in Zimbabwe, she would have been arrested or worse if she had gone back and protested. But when Mugabe left power, she returned home for the first time in years. And she would go through the streets of Zimbabwe calling on people 
to activate politically, to talk to their elected political leaders, to exercise their right in a democracy that they had never fully experienced before. And she gathered people together and collected donations and filled these planters in the main central square of Harare, Zimbabwe, with flowers. And she got everybody else to collaborate and throw the trash out that he collected in the planters and water the flowers. And to me, she represented that even in the face of a dictatorship as harsh as Robert Mugabe, there is hope if you persevere and you don't give up. And then the third person who caps this chapter is a woman named Mami Vin. Her real name is Vinolio Akijo, and she lives in the city of Jogjakarta, Indonesia. And I went to Indonesia because it is geographically the largest and also the most diverse democracy in the world. And it has pluralism literally written into its founding documents. It's a principle called Pancasila. And I wanted to report stories about how Indonesia was cultivating and protecting its pluralism in the face of all of these forces that were pulling people apart in hopes that maybe we could learn something in our own democracy here in the US. And one of the things I learned was that across the entire stretch of Indonesia, there are transgender women called warias. And in Jogjakarta, Mami Vin was sort of the matriarch of the warias community. And the way healthcare works in Indonesia is that you get access to healthcare through your family. And it's a formalized process where you have something that is like a social security card, but it lists all your family members. And when people came out as trans in Indonesia, they were often kicked out of the family and therefore cut off from healthcare. And what Mami Vin did was, show, was work with the government in order to create family cards that worked within the transgender community so that members of the Waria community could have access to healthcare. And so these people who I met in one way or another are all fighting to bend the arc of the universe towards justice, to paraphrase Dr. Martin Luther King. And many of them are doing so in the face of extreme adversity. And you know, I, I end that chapter with like another one who I just kind of want to sneak in under the wire, who's a woman who I met, a young woman in Paris, uh, sorry, in Glasgow. I covered two UN climate summits. One was in Paris, one was in Glasgow. And in Glasgow, Brianna Fruin, who was then 23, on the opening day of the climate summit, addressed all of these assembled world leaders. She was an activist from the island nation of Samoa. And she stood in front of them in this brightly colored dress with a flower in her hair, and she said, this is our warrior cry. We are not drowning, we're fighting. And so when I interviewed Brianna Fruin a few days later, I said to her, she was once again wearing tangerine and lavender and had a flower in her hair, and I said, is this about more than just your personal sense of style, being the most brightly colored, dressed person here. And she said, yes, you come to this climate summit and you're surrounded by images of catastrophe and apocalypse, climate disasters all over the world, on huge banner posters all over these meeting halls. And she said, I come here and people think they're entitled to my trauma, but I don't want to give them my trauma. She said, I want to give them my joy. She said, I'm a happy, optimistic person, and that optimism is what I come here to save. My joy, my culture, is what we are trying to preserve. And so I come here with this sense of hope and belief in the future, because that's the only thing that can motivate us. And people have often asked me over the course of my career how I stay optimistic in the face of everything that's happening in the news, in the face of all of the terrible events that we as journalists cover every day. 
And these are the people who keep me optimistic. These are the people who I carry with me, who give me hope in the future. And I feel like if they persevere, if they have hope and optimism and belief and passion, what right do I have to experience despair? What right do I have to give up? And so those are some of the stories that I carry with me every day as a journalist. They're some of the, the stories that I share with you in this book, The Best Strangers in the World. They're the people who serve as examples for me of how to confront life's ugliness with beauty, how to meet horror with humor, and how to smile in the face of whatever might come next. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. It's really an honor to be here with you. And now, Mr. Shapiro, if you're ready, I'd like you to come back into the pulpit and we'll present the questions from the audience. Thank you so much. I'd be delighted to take your questions. Well, we will not ask you what your favorite interview has been. You've been warned. But we do note that the title of your book is The Best Strangers, strangers in the World. Yeah. Yeah, so that would suggest you do have. You've been through a lot of strangers, and these are the best. And then you, of course, give us four of your favorites that aren't really favorites. Yeah. Uh, that's good. I like But, you the... know, the concept of the best strangers to me captures the really unusual relationship that I have with people who I meet in the field where I might only ever interact with them for five minutes or 15 minutes in our entire lives. And yet that brief encounter can be so profound and meaningful. And the act of listening, particularly in difficult situations, whether it's a refugee crisis or a mass shooting. I think the act of listening can be healing, it can be an act of care, as someone of the clergy knows well. And, and so that idea of the best strangers to me sort of captures the unique quality of those interactions that I'm privileged enough to have over so many years in so many different places. We're on the eve of Passover, an important uh, season for Jews. And uh, you refer to your time in Fargo as the only Jew in the elementary school. In the and, village. Yes. <laughs> uh, of course, you know this, that the theological concept of stranger in, in uh, Hebrew theology. For you theology, were once strangers in the land of Egypt, is exactly, the phrase. Exactly, yeah. in Hebrew. How much did that form your approach to your life, actually? I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question. For me, it's a really... <laughs> I didn't and write that That was my question. question. I didn't plant that question, so well, I'm allowed to say it was a great... My own. That was an authentic, great question. Thank you. But I'm glad you were paying attention. For me, the story we tell at Passover of the exodus from slavery to freedom is foundational because we are told to tell the story as though we ourselves were strangers in the land of Egypt. And to me, that is fundamentally a radical act of empathy. We are being asked to view the world through the eyes of somebody who lived thousands of years ago in an entirely different place, time, scenario, context. And that leap of intuitive, empathetic imagining is what I try to do as a reporter and provide for my audience who are listening to my stories on NPR. So yeah, that's like a very fundamental building block. 
Have you uh, had an experience in radio journalism or perhaps your whole life in, in journalism ha have, that's changed the way that you consume news or that you uh, gain uh, your own information? Well, this is less a reflection of a specific experience that I've had in the news and more a reflection of my job of pitching stories to all things considered every day. Like, we have an editorial meeting each morning where everybody on staff sits around a table and suggests ideas for what we should be putting on the show that day. And so it's kind of a curatorial role, and, 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 and as a result of that, I find that I am much more of a grazer now. So I will read a little bit of a lot of things as opposed to previously when I might have, as a, as a beat reporter, dive really, really deep into stories about a particular topic. And so it's less about a specific experience that I had in my reporting and more about kind of the demands of the job and what I have to do to meet those demands. What kind of mental habits have you, has this developed in you or instilled in you as you approach life? Um, I'm not sure exactly what the questioner means by mental habits, but I'm going to take that to mean sort of mental health because it's, you know, speaker's prerogative. I get to answer the question that I imagine was asked. And I do think it's really important. I mean, we were just talking before this event about secondary trauma when being present in the face of difficult circumstances, even if you have not experienced the difficulty yourself, can create what psychologists call secondary trauma. And I have found, after covering horrific events, that I need to take some time and space for myself. And so there was one such scenario after the Pulse nightclub shooting. Shortly thereafter, a friend and colleague was killed in Afghanistan while he was on assignment for NPR. And I said to my bosses, like, I need to take a couple days. And I think, in big picture, long term, that's important. In short picture, small term, I also do a lot of small things. I garden, I cook, I run, I do yoga. I have two dogs who are not technically therapy dogs, but I'm sure if they took the test, they would pass the test. <laughs> and so I, I think it's really important to keep that in mind because unless you are preserving your own mental health, you're not gonna be able to go out and continue doing the work. When you're interviewing people in difficult situations, as you often do, war zones, et cetera, is it hard for you to leave that situation, leave that individual or those people in that community and walk away? How do you separate yourself from the emotional impact of what you're seeing? I don't find it difficult because I think a lot about the role that I'm there to play and the job that I'm there to do. And I, I don't mean job in the terms of occupation. I mean, so I'll tell you a story about right after 9-11, I was sort of the most junior person on the morning edition staff and I was working the overnight shift. So I was about to go home for the day when the first plane hit the World Trade Center. I said right after 9-11, but I'm actually describing what happened on that day. Um, when Morning Edition went off the air at noon and passed the baton to the next show up, the host of Morning Edition, who was then Bob Edwards, sort of gathered everybody around and said, and Bob was a taciturn person. He was not the type to give an inspirational speech. He said, as journalists, we're lucky that in these moments when everybody's wondering what they can do, what role they can play, we know what we're here to do. We know what our role is, and that is to tell the story and to keep people informed and to share the experiences of the people who are living through this and create connections. And, you know, that was, I was maybe 22 years old at that point, and I remember that so vividly that actually when the country was shutting down at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic and everybody was suddenly working from home and there were people on the staff 20 years younger than me and I'm now a host of all things considered, 
I shared that story with the staff of ATC and said, like, we are lucky that in this moment when people don't know what they're supposed to be doing, we have a role to play. And so I, I think about when I was at the Poland-Ukraine border and people were pouring across that border in the largest refugee exodus since World War II. And all over there were volunteers trying to be of use. And it was obviously a well-intentioned motivation, but I felt really lucky that like, I know what I'm here to do. And so whatever scenario I'm in, my role is not to stick around. My role is to listen, to tell the story, to share that story, and then to move on. And, and I'm comfortable with that. Question from a, from a student in the audience, uh, apparently a student of journalism. What advice do you have for minority journalists like yourself fighting to get their foot in the door of our predominantly cis, white, straight, male news industry? <laughs> and then for representation once in. Yeah, so um, the news industry has changed a lot in my 20 years. And part of what I see when I look back is that when NPR was founded in 1971, Susan Stamberg was the first woman ever to anchor a nationally broadcast nightly news program. And when I arrived at NPR, I wasn't sure that there was a space in journalism broadly or NPR specifically for a person like me who cared about the world and valued human stories. And what I realized was that just as the founding mothers of NPR made the news business a place that could be welcoming to people like them, I didn't have to accept media as I saw it for what it was or expect that that was how it would always be. I thought I can be part of a generation of journalists that continues, not begins, but continues the evolution of journalism to be more inclusive and more representative. And one of the things that I think we have come to realize as newsrooms is that it matters who's sitting around that table in the morning when the All Things Considered staff is saying what stories should we cover. If there's nobody sitting around that table who is a sports fan, we're not going to be covering sports in a responsible way. And I'm deliberately choosing a sort of bland example there because the second thing I think we've realized is that there is no such thing as an absence of identity. And being a member of a marginalized group might allow you to see the scaffolding of society a little bit more clearly, but there is no such thing as the view from nowhere. And fish may not be aware of the water they swim in, but the water is real. And so my identity as a cis white male is as relevant to the way I see the world as my identity as somebody who's Jewish and gay. And so my advice to the journalism student who asked that question would be, if you don't see a place for yourself, make a place for yourself. And you don't have to accept the world as it is, you can help make the world what you think it ought to be. Continuing that thread of identity, when you became an unpaid intern for Nina Totenberg, everyone said, do you want to grow up and be the next Nina Totenberg? And you said, no, I want to grow up and be Ari Shapiro. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of that, a rude answer, really. Yeah. <laughs> has that happened? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, like, actually, I was, I was afraid writing a memoir would just seem like an arrogant, egotistical exercise in self-congratulation. 
Yes. Because I'm Jewish. (laughs) But with that as a caveat, I'm proud to say that, like, I have carved out a niche for myself that is uniquely mine. And I'm living a life as a journalist and as a singer and a performer and now an author that is a reflection of the way I situate myself in the world. And of course, I'm part of many larger communities. When I'm singing with Pink Martini, I am a part of that band. I'm not just showing up and doing my own thing. When I'm reporting for NPR, I'm operating within the culture of NPR. But take them all together and I think, yeah, I can say like, I've done something that's different from anyone else. I was actually doing an event in Texas and in the audience Q&A, somebody asked the question, what does NPR make of you? Which I loved for just the reason that we're talking about. That, like, I do feel like I've been able to carve out a niche for myself that is uniquely mine. And I think, you know, whoever's listening and trying to imagine what their life and future and their sort of place in the ecosystem looks like, it looks like something that doesn't exist yet in the best of all possible worlds. It looks like something that is uniquely you, whatever that may mean. There are a lot of questions coming forward in the room here and also from online about Israel and what's going on in Israel right now. And uh, you may not want to express an opinion on the specifics of the situation, but as a radio journalist, how would you get into that story and what perspective would you want to bring to the surface? I appreciate your recognition that this may not be something that I want to get into the details of as it is something that NPR is reporting on actively. To me, well, so there are two ways I would answer that question. One is I have a lot of experience flying into a country that I have never been in before, hitting the ground running and knowing that I have to get a story on the air within 12 hours. And in the book I give lots of examples of how I do that and the short answer is start anywhere and you don't have to be at the center of the spider web. Wherever you are, you map out the rest of the spider web and then you get the full picture eventually. But the slightly longer answer is, I did this reporting project in October that was sort of the most ambitious thing I've ever done, where I went from Senegal to Morocco to Spain, and my goal was to connect the dots across three of the largest stories of our time, I think, which is um, climate change, global migration, and the rise of far-right political leaders. And the story in Israel does not, as far as I'm aware, have a climate change or migration component, but I do think that it fits in more broadly with a global trend towards a shift to the right and anti-democratic tendencies. I interviewed a wonderful author named um, Moises Naim, who wrote a book about this, and of course the title of the book escapes me at the moment, but um, he's sort of charting how from Asia to the Mideast to Europe to the Americas, these anti-democratic sentiments are growing and how and why. And so, you know, if I were in the editorial meeting at All Things Considered this week, which I'm obviously here, so I'm not, I, I think I might say, we have good on the ground reporting from Israel. Our reporter, Daniel Estrin, is doing a great job. Let's pull back the camera and ask some questions about how this fits into larger global anti-democratic trends. How, how do you uh, select the people you have uh, in your interviews on, on the show. Do you, does someone do that for you or do you find it's, them? It's such a team effort and so many people work on making the show whose names and voices you don't hear. And so just to continue with the example of let's have a conversation about global anti-democratic sentiment or trends, 
I might say, oh, you know, I did a great interview with Moses Naim, so he might be a place to start. But ideally, coming out of that editorial meeting, if it's something we decide we want to do that day, a producer is going to make calls to three to five people. We'll do background interviews with them. And then we'll either say, this person is hands down the best guest, or come back to me with their notes from the three to five background interviews. And we'll talk about who the best guest might be and what their different perspectives are, what they bring to the table. And then, based on the background conversations, the producer, the editor, and I will collaborate on a script. So I'll have an introduction and questions. And then in the conversation, I might totally go off script because I think one of the key parts of a good interview is listening and responding in real time and not just going, well, after question two, I'm going to ask question three. And after question three comes question four. So that's kind of how the kosher sausage is made. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about uh, your feeling about what NPR, NPR is about in terms of raising trust in this medium, the uh, radio trust, trust in that medium versus the disinformation and misinformation that we hear in other sources of media? Yeah, one of the great strengths of NPR is that because we're based on member station, uh, we're built on member stations, we are literally in every community. And so... In the run-up to President Trump's election, I think there was a lot of media self-scrutiny and external scrutiny about, like, why were these people from New York and D.C. trying to tell us what was happening in a country when clearly they didn't know what was going on? NPR, not to be self-congratulatory, but we have reporters in Mississippi, in Montana, in Idaho, in places where sometimes the public radio reporter is the only person covering the state house, covering the state legislature, the governor's mansion, the mayor's office. And that presence in that community, I think, not only helps us build trust with our audience, but helps us build accountability going up the chain to where I sit. So if something happens in a part of the country, we don't have to send our DC-based correspondent in to cover it. We have people there who know the community, who know the underlying issues, who know the major players, and we can turn to them, which I think is a huge asset, particularly in this time of mistrust in institutions, specifically the media. Does National Public Radio see as part of its mission in this time with the cultural polarities and the division of the House, uh, see as part of its mission the bridging of some of that? And specifically, do you feel that as part of your mission? Yeah, I, you know, somebody the other day asked how my storytelling can influence people in a positive way. And I gently corrected them that my, I don't see my goal as influencing anyone in any way. I see my goal as illumination, not influence. And it may seem like a distinction without a difference because I'm aware that a story about refugees that I tell may sound very similar to a story that Refugees International, the nonprofit organization, tells, but they have different goals. Refugees International wants you to do something. And I say that not as a criticism, but I say that descriptively. And I want you to understand something. And so as we cover divided government, I mean, when I was a White House correspondent, there was divided government. John Boehner was the Speaker of the House. Barack Obama was the President. My goal is to truly understand for myself and then share with you what's happening, why, where people are coming from, beyond the talking points, what the gravitational forces pulling on the major players are, and how that is surfacing and the things that we can see. Is there one place that you've never been in the world that you want to go, and why? You know, 
There are so many places. There's not just one. Um, I am well-traveled in Europe and the Middle East and a little bit of Africa. I'm not nearly as well-traveled in Asia, so there's a long list of Asian countries I would like to visit. I've been to some, India, South Korea, et cetera, Indonesia, um, but there are a lot of Asian countries I've never visited. You know, I've done so much reporting on climate change. I'm very aware that there are low-lying island nations that might cease to exist in my lifetime, and I would like to see some of those before they're gone. It's a long list. I could keep going. <laughs> Question here about AI, artificial yeah. intelligence. Uh, could you have said to a chatbot, an AI chatbot, write a memoir by Ari Shapiro? <laughs> and it would have come out roughly what you produce? Um, I don't know if you all are familiar with the columnist Dan Savage, but he tackled this question, which he said he'd been getting a lot, by taking a listener letter, or not listener, I'm sorry, a reader letter, and writing his own answer and then putting it side by side with the answer that the AI chatbot had produced and saying, readers, can you guess which one was written by a human and which one was written by the chatbot? It was hilarious because there was <laughs> no guessing involved. It was abundantly immediately clear. I am not worried that a chatbot could have written my memoir, nor am I worried that tomorrow I'll be out of a job. But I believe that AI is going to dramatically transform our lives in ways that we can't currently imagine. Ezra Klein had a very good column about the fundamental human assumption that tomorrow will look like today. And he was saying, when you look at the pace of AI development, it is very clear tomorrow will not look like today. And we have not begun to grapple with all the ways in which tomorrow will look different. That's as specific as I can get, but I think we should all be prepared for dramatic change, and that can be positive and or negative change in many different fields beyond just journalism. Speaking of dramatic change, we've just come through a pandemic. Uh, did that change you or change the way you do your work or NPR does its work? It did, and in both positive and negative ways. Um, for two years, I was hosting All Things Considered from home out of my guest bedroom slash home office, and we had to get really creative about how we did storytelling with audio when we couldn't actually go anywhere. And so, you know, we'd be talking to a restaurant owner about the outside streetery seating in the street, and we would say to them, okay, we're gonna ask you a favor. After we get off the phone, will you just record a voice memo as you're setting up those tables and chairs and don't talk while you're doing it. We just want the sound of you setting up the tables and chairs. And then they would send us that voice memo and we would weave it into the story. And so we had to get creative about how we did things. I, a month ago, got a mild case of COVID, which by the way, I was very grateful for because it means on this book tour, I have maximum antibodies. And because it was a mild case, I was able to keep working, but of course I wasn't about to go into the office. And so I was able to host All Things Considered from home for a week, which pre-pandemic, I just didn't have the capacity to host from home. I got a lot of listener emails saying, you sound sick, are you okay? Which is, you know, nice of them to let me know I don't sound my best. <laughs> uh, speaking of sounding, there's a lot of questions that have come forward asking you to sing. So I, that may come up, just brace yourself. This is, I'm warning you, I'm okay. not asking you. Yeah, just, yeah. You're the top, someone suggests. But, oh. uh, yeah, uh, tell us what, you know, when in these interviews you do all over the world, what you're learning from them about their view of America. Oh, everything. I mean, 
I think specifically when you ask that question about what my experience was like covering the Romney campaign for the entirety of 2012, which I thought of as almost like a pointillistic approach to painting a portrait of America, because I would go with Romney to, you know, sometimes it was three, four states a day where he would have a rally. And we'd roll into the rally five or 10 minutes before he started speaking, and that was the amount of time I had to talk to people in the crowd. So I figured out pretty quickly how to like, cut to the chase and get something real from a person in maximum three questions. And so in each of those moments, and this is sort of what I talk about when I say the best strangers in the world, like I have these real but very fleeting connections with people. And so each one of those moments was one brief point of color in what cumulatively, I hoped, painted a portrait of America in that year 2012. Um, and that's, you know, that's one reason I'm so grateful that All Things Considered is a show with four hosts and only two of us host any given week because it allows me to keep going out into the world and keep talking to people and keep experiencing things and keep connected with what's actually happening in people's lives, which I think you can get isolated from if you're just sitting in a studio every day. The Town Hall Forum series this spring is What the World Can Teach Us. And you've hinted at a lot of that, but how would you summarize in your experience what the world can teach the U.S.? I think we have the incredible privilege in the United States of having an enormous ocean on either side of us and not having had a war fought on American soil in more than 100 years. And so it's easy for us to feel isolated, different, privileged, dis distinct, and not recognize the way in which we are all so interconnected. I mean, you look at what happened when the supply chain was disrupted, and suddenly the phrase global economy felt very real. And I think my experience when I went out to start reporting on wars was that I realized I was sort of categorizing people who lived through wars as somehow different from us. Like the phrase I used was war people in war places. And of course, they're no different from us at all. And then my goal was to figure out how not only to recognize that commonality, but to share it with my audience. And so if you live in, let's say, Sarajevo, there is no ignoring the interconnectedness of the world because you've been experiencing that interconnectedness for better and for worse your entire life. And I think as Americans, we have to work to recognize that until it comes crashing in, in the case of a pandemic or a supply chain disruption. And I think looking outward can help us lose some of those blinders. Number of questions here about how you got into singing, what singing does for you that reporting doesn't yeah. do. Uh, we're, you know, you sing with uh, uh, an orchestra, yeah, uh, and you sing in a cabaret show, you, and you're going to sing in the Town Hall Forum in a moment. Ah. Uh, so what is it about singing? As much as I talk about the connection that can happen through the radio, it's sort of a one-way street. You know, like, I don't often see the people who I'm reporting to who are hearing the stories. Whereas when I'm in a live performance, whether it's with Alan Cumming or with Pink Martini, there is this very real give and take with the audience. It's a kind of communion. It's a kind of electric energy that goes back and forth. There's an excitement to forgetting your lyrics and having an unexpected moment on stage, having to start the song over, something, you know, like, 
there are all of these moments that I remember from various live performances over the years that only happen when it's a live performance. There's something about everybody listening to or making music at the same time where I don't know if the heartbeats literally sync up, but we're all driven by a rhythm that is pumping from inside of us. And suddenly, everybody in the room together is sharing a different common rhythm that we're all experiencing in real time. And I think there's something really extraordinary about that. Okay. <laughs> I actually love the idea of You're the Top because um, Alan and I, when we do our show, we come out and we immediately just launch into this medley of four songs about kind of like friendship and friendly rivalry and some are better known and some are worse known. And the very first one is You're the Top. And I rewrote the lyrics to it to be about me and Alan. So this is less of a like impressive vocal performance and more of a my taking pride in the lyrics that I wrote that I'm sharing with you. Do you okay? want me to do, should I do Alan's part? Or? Yeah, do you know the words? No. Okay. <laughs> well, then I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to play both roles. Okay, so I come out and I sing to Alan, you're the top, you are joie de vivre, you're the top, you're a Broadway diva. You're a graceful swan. Your name is on a bar. He says, club coming. His name is on a bar. You were wild and frisky, a Scottish whiskey, a movie star. I mean, those are pretty good lyrics, right? Okay. And then he sings to me, you're the top. You leave haters cursing. You're the top. You're taller in person. I was Mr. Floop, but you get the scoop. You pop. And if baby on the bottom, you're the top. And then there's another verse. You asked for it. <laughs> I sing to him, you're the top. You're a vegan dinner. He's vegan. You're the top. You're a Tony winner. Two Tonys, actually. You are cabaret, a Shakespeare play, a dream. You're the Oxford comma, a network drama, your self-esteem. <laughs> and then, and this is the last one, I promise, he says, you're a star, your career is glittered, you'll go far, you're all things considered. <laughs> An effete, aesthete, a garden's bumper crop, I garden. And if baby on the bottom, you're the top. Whoever suggested you're the top, that was a great idea. Thank you for talking. Yeah, this is Ari Shapiro, Westminster Town Hall Forum. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. If you enjoyed today's program, please leave us a rating or review and tell a friend. A reminder that these programs are free and made possible by individual donors. Visit westminsterforum.org to become a supporter today. Our theme music was composed by Kenneth Veen and performed by the Copper Street Brass. Audio recording by Keith Kopatz. 
Our moderator is Tim Hart Anderson, and I'm Forum Director Tane Danger. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again at the Westminster Town.